Welcome, ye trout bum troubadours, ye salmonid space sabours, and today, especially the maniacal mayfly hatch matching magicians that crack the code of the how selective trout take your fedora flea flicker fly concoctions. I am Matthew Sapinski, and we are Hollowed Waters Podcast, and we are loving life today because we got such a special guest that I'm going to talk about here shortly, but um, it is great, um, great you guys are joining us with this podcast, and we are on another adventure into the unknown universe with trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And all we know, but especially to all the things we don't know and are hungry to learn. A special thanks this morning to our producer, Lori, for getting two old white dudes set up with technology, which is always a challenge in today's world. So we thank you, Lori, very much. And we are hooked and ready. And we have a guest from hundreds of miles away who's all hooked up and ready to go. And we are now two savvy old white cool dudes ready to rock the cyber world with our knowledge and enthusiasm. Uh, So it's also many thanks to so many listeners that have been uh, listening to our Hallowed Waters podcast. Um, We've picked up so many thousands of listeners since we went to Apple Podcasts and were surprisingly and unsolicitedly featured by them one day about Hollowed Waters podcasts and our listening audience has dramatically zoomed way up as far high as we're zooming right now on this podcast with my guest. Um, So thank you all for your amazing emails and responses. Uh, We can't thank you enough. And we're hoping that you guys are learning something from our podcast because we don't just do this for the hell of it. We're doing this to instill our seasoned pride and to feel good about ourselves that we've shared our knowledge with other people. And today, everything's about feeling good about yourself, isn't it, my friend? So, um, but anyways, I know I'm just being very jovial and very uh, feisty this morning. So tolerate me. It'll it'll die down as soon as the medication clicks in and everything's going to be fine. Um, but uh, so I also a very uh, special thank you to all the subscribers to Hollowed Waters Journal. Our magazine um, is just growing leaps and bounds. And um, so we got very good news for all you timber lovers, all the timber lovers that like to turn pages. We have a challenge. There will be no excuse now. We are going to a hard copy glossy print this summer of each issue that we've done. And they'll be featuring all these mini book journals so you could read them by your fireplace when you're sipping your bourbon and your wine and your micro beers and smoking whatever you're smoking that you pick in your gardens today that everybody's growing and eating things. And, um, and then you could, uh, then we're going to sell them to you for an astronomical amount of money. So we could be filthy stinking rich, like Elon Musk and Richard Branson and Bezos. And we'll fly around the galaxy. Me and my guests today, we're going to fly around the galaxy and find new trout streams on different planets that aren't so hammered to death by people. And I guarantee you, we're going to be the first ones out there. We're going to boldly go where no other trout bum has ever gone before. Once we become billionaires off these podcasts, which we don't make, absolutely squat off them. They're for free. And that's the magic word today is free. 
So Matt, why don't you shut your mouth and why don't we get on with this podcast? Because uh, we have a guest here that's waiting. Uh, But um, again, today's topic is the mayfly mystique, the hatches saga, selective trout, and the meniscus and benthos addiction. And that means to you, dry fly and nymph guys, that's where you fish. Um, So on that note, I'm going to slowly introduce our guest who is a, um, is an icon. And I'm, I'm so happy to be featuring and allowing the, and these guests allowing me to tape them as these icons exist today when it comes to mayflies and hatches and everything that's done with that. Um, He is, um, (laughs) I mean, his, his, his portfolio is amazing and what he's done to the mayfly world uh, is incredible. Uh, if I start reading his accolades and his bio, you'll know, um, you know exactly who he, this man is. But um, without further ado, we're going to talk about his bio and portfolio. But without further ado, he, this man I have today, is the mayfly maestro of the mesmerizing magic in the meniscus. He is the L- Italian Latin bug master from the minutia to the macro, and to the manicotti. This guy catches big selective trout with the seduction of a sorcerer's spell casted in the form of a comparadon. The one and only Senor Alfredo Cauchi. Como va, Alfredo? Prego. Here he is, Mr. Al Couchy. Cosa ci di nuovo? What's going on in the Catskills, my friend? Tell us about the Catskills these days. And you're probably looking outside your window and probably seeing trout rise. Yeah, I've been doing that all week. <laughs> you poor guy. Here's a guy that goes fishing. You know years. what I did? I set up my office on my kitchen counter because it overlooks half of home pool out front so I could see who's fishing it and how many fish are rising, how big the fish are by the, the head and the, and the, the, the depression that it makes, you know, oh so it's, it's a great spot, but I, my, uh, the zoom wouldn't work there. So now I'm in this cooped up stupid office of mine. Yeah, we were hoping that you could, we were we were trying, I think the next time, we're going to have to do part two, because I think we're not going to cover part one with Al today. But when we do part two, we got to set it up where you're actually on the river at home pool watching trout rise. And you could tell us exactly what we're taking, because people today don't want to know. They don't yeah, want to probably do that out on my porch. You have a really, really good view, you know. And so maybe the next time we'll do that. We should do that. But so anyways, people, this man has been an icon for me for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, probably 40 plus years. Um, Al is uh, is the author of five fly fishing books, Compare Hatches, Hatches, 1974, Fly Tires, Color Guide, 1978, Instant Mayfly Identification Guide, 1984, Hatches 2, 1986. After Bob Nastasi, his wonderful companion, passed away, he wrote the Mayfly Guide in 2011. Al has been featured in so many articles in Fly Fisherman Magazine, uh, a magazine that I I uh, wrote for and I love very much to death. Ross Purnell, did you hear me? I love your magazine to death. And it was with a phenomenal guy named John Randolph, who Al knows very well. 
I got my first article published with the help of Nick Lyons, who helped me write it on Big Limestone Trout. But Al was writing these magnificent things for so long. And, and you know, he was, uh, Al was on the board, a director of fly fishing, uh, Catskill Fly Fishing Museum. Uh, Al and Bob were introduced, induced into the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame in October 2006. Um, Al Cucci has been an international name in the fly fishing world. He's Everybody in Italy knows him. Everybody in Montana knows him. Everybody in the tropics knows Al. Um, Al is uh, 84 years young, I think. 84, right, Al? Five. Five. 85. Oh, Jesus Christ, you're still a puppy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know. You're the pup. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And Al Cucci created the famous Comparadon. So if you look in anybody's fly box today, I guarantee you're going to find Comparadons. You're going to find Compare Mergers. You're going to find Compare Spinners. He revolutionized it with the spectrumized dubbing. The man, uh, he took hatches to a whole different level. I mean, I, I can I can stop reading all these accolades. But um, And I was so gifted um, that Al wrote the foreword for my selectivity book, um, back when I published it um, with uh, with Stackpool Books, and he wrote a beautiful introduction for me. And if when you read Selectivity, please read the foreword uh, that he wrote because he talks about everything he did with Betty and how he started and chasing fish and chasing trout. And um, this guy is, uh, when the mayflies come, that this guy, this guy, they, they run when they hear Alf Gucci's going to be on the Delaware and, and Trout are going to start taking mayflies. I mean, so, I mean, so Al, I mean, there's so much to, to talk about today, but uh, let's start off with um, how are things going in the Catskills these days, the hatches, how's the heat, the weather, the flows, give us a little, give us a little update overview of what you see happening in the Catskills today. Okay. Uh, I returned from Florida, which I I spend the winter there now, uh, mid-April. And when I got here, the weather was in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was raining. The water was high. And it was pretty tough that the rest of the April. And in May, there was like uh, windows of nice weather where you want to get out there. And then it would just get nasty again. In fact, I think we had like six inches of snow in May, early May. Oh. Yeah, got, it was crazy. And uh, by the time I got out on the river steadily, uh, there was tons of boats. I mean, it looked like the Missouri River wow. up, at, up at Halter Dam. <laughs> Crazy, and that could be nuts. and lots of waders. Yeah, it was crazy, but uh, you know we still managed to do okay. Uh, I caught the the Hendrickson's, uh, like the light Hendrickson, which is Severia, ephemeral Severia, right? Uh, and the fish were eating those. Uh, the the uh, rotunda a little later in the month of May, which were dark, like a fourteen dark brown in comparison, and then there's another one called X that I had to name it myself because yeah. What is no- all the X stuff? I'm going to interrupt you. I want you to keep going this because I keep hearing the X and Johnny Miller, the bug doctor, my other friend, uh, 
and wonderful guy that subscribed that is the bug doctor in the hollowed waters journal tell me he talks about this x and where do we go with this x it sounds like the well, x file I, I named it x because they didn't have a name for it in the biology books you know wow. in the biology books so then i gave him hell on <laughs> the the thing is the best book ever written was 1935 when they used to hand out grants and now they don't hand out grants anymore for mayflies and caddisflies only for pests so economical for pests but it's not my god yeah so yeah there's a lot of subspecies on the, especially on the delaware of some of the famous hatches that uh should have names, but I have to call them X, Y, and Z and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what have you, what have you seen this year? I mean, uh, you've had a lot of water or low water and it's been up and down and you've had flows all over the place or what? Yeah. It's been tough. Uh, during a week, it's a little better during the weekends. Forget about it. I never go out during a weekend. Just, just people from everywhere. This, this, you know, I was, be careful what you wish for, because you know, when I started my schools back in 1984 and my guide operation, um, I never dreamed that it would get blow out of proportion like this. But now the river has a lot of friends. And when something goes wrong, there's a lot of squawking by thousands and thousands of people versus a couple of dozen, you know, how that works. And uh, so for that, I'm thankful. But for the fishing, you know, you have it, it, it's it's still great, but it's it's crowded. Yeah, I, 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 you know, the social media stuff and I go to fly fishing the Catskills on Facebook and you see everything. And, and you know, today, um, you know, we're all two antiquated guys that, you know, written a lot and. Um, you know, do people still read books? And I'm still happy to hear that some people still read books. But, you know, today it's a YouTube generation and it's a social media generation. And today's book is written on social media in the next 24 hours. And that's when uh, what you're going to find your knowledge on. And, and uh, we're, we're hoping that the younger generations will finally explore books again and like what i'm trying to accomplish with hollowed waters journal and i think what john randolph did with fly fishermen was really try to take the depth and knowledge and the unknown and the empiricism the empirical amount of attention you have to put into fly fishing is incredible and it's not just i tie this bug on i bought five bugs at a shop i go out and catch fish i mean when you want to do the hatch matching game and that's what al did that was a revolutionary, um, uh, like my other predecessor was, uh, who I fished with here, Carl Richards, who, who him and Swisher and Richards wrote Selective Trout. And Carl was a dentist in Rockford, Michigan, which is right down the road from me. And Carl and I used to fish the Muskegon when he was writing his Caddis Pan books. And um, Carl was obsessed with bugs and he was obsessed with Latin. And that's what Al did to fly fishing. We went from just calling it a yellow Sally or a, or a, you know, a quill or something or a, 
uh, Theodore Gordon, or, you know, we went to Latin terms and that's, we're going to talk a lot about Latin today. And he made Latin a must learn if you're going to master the hatch matching world. And before it was like those little green thingies and those little yellow thingies and those little white thingies. And now it's like everybody knows it's an Inveria or a Rotunda. They know it's a Stenonema versus an Isonychia. They know it's a Epiorus versus this. And and that's what hatches did. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, the development developmental years... Um, you know, how did it get started? And that's a long, it's all in your books and stuff. But what were the key ingredients when you and Nastasi said, hey, we're, we're, we're building aquariums. We're going to master this book things out. Because you had Preston Jennings. You had all the greats before you that came in the Catskills and, and LaBranch and, and the names and Gordon. And, and, you know, it just keeps going and Hewitt and blah, 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 blah. It just keeps going forever and ever and ever. But you guys were going to make these guides like Carl did and with Selective Trout. And another guy that was very good at it was a guy named Fred Arbona. And he wrote The Mayflies, The Hatch, and The Trout. Um, and he's passed away, I found, um, a few years back. Oh, did he? Yes. Oh, sorry to Isn't hear that. terrible? That. Um, but uh, he like passed him. away, and I liked his book very much. So there was a connection with three books, and they were – Selective Trout by my mentor, Carl and Richards, and then Al's book. And then Dick Popes was associated with his Trout Stream Insects and Orvis, and he was associated with this whole little inner circle and Fred Arbona. And there, the Catskills in New York and Pennsylvania all had a very integral part in this whole learning process. But when, how did it get started with you and Bob? And when did you say, I'm going to, we're going to take this leap and build aquariums and we're going to study these bugs, and we're going to find out exactly what the hell's going on. Give us the give us the well, genesis. Well, of uh, Bob was a uh, uh, an artist uh, uh, in New York City, and they did promotion material for Hollywood. Him and his partner, and uh, unfortunately for him, he met me and took a shine to actually my neighbor. Uh, I built a cabin in the in the Poconos, right? And it and it was unique, and 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 because it, I had like a big firestone stone fly stone fireplace, and it, and I sunk the floor in and made this conversation pit that fit fifteen people. And that was basically most of the house. <laughs> then it was a couple of bedrooms and a bathroom and it was a whole open concept because the whole living room, the conversation pit, the kitchen was all in the open and you had to go through the, this hallway in order to get to the bedrooms and bathroom. And uh, so my neighbor Otto bars was a vice president of a text uh, public, uh, a text company. Right. Uh, they did textbooks. He was a, VP there. And he says, you know, he says, you're the craziest bastard I've ever seen. He said that, you know, you have, because I, I started aquariums in the sixties long before I met Bob. And I, I used to study how they emerged and this and that. He says, anybody that is crazy as you, they're bound to sell books. 
I said, but I never wrote a book. He says, it doesn't matter. He says, you know everything about this. So one, he he takes um, Otto Bars' wife and Bob Nastassi's wife were friends. So they went to visit Otto, and then they, Otto decided, you got to come over to Al Gucci's house. So he comes over, and Bob walks in, and he sees aquariums, and he sees my vice fly time vice with all the different patterns, you know, the compare patterns. And he just like flipped out because he was only fishing for like two years. And so he had a million questions. He came in around one o'clock in the afternoon. He left like two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, he was so like overwhelmed with stuff. And then when he left, I haven't, I didn't hear from him for about a month or so. And then I got a phone call from him and he says, me and Otto have a meeting. We want you to attend. Right. And I, I says, what for? He says, I'll tell you when you get here. So I went to New York city, went to dinner and they says, we would like to do fly fishing books the right way. And with all your scientific background and your technical writing ability and my art sketches and photographs and Otto's uh, uh, experience in the publishing field, we ought to be able to put some really great books together. So I says, wait a minute now, you know, I'm an engineer. I work, I'm a chief engineer of a company or chief designer, and I'm working on my degree at night. And I said, well, you think about it. So I thought about it and I called my lawyer because I had to make a big life change. And I told him, draw up an agreement. And who was doing what, this and that. And, and, and meanwhile, I put together a folder, I swear to Matt, was like this thick wow. about what was done, what should be done, when to do it, how much it would cost. Wow. And, you know, the whole thing. It was a book in itself. Wow. And uh, so they, I gave them both a copy and... They said, let's do it. So we formed a company called Comparahatch Limited, which would include books, flies, and other stuff. Okay. Right. And that's how we got started back in 1971. Wow. That is amazing. You know, and so you're, you know, looking at your book, you could see the look at the hatches, which I have in I have one of your first edition hatches in my hands right now. And looking at your book and your quality, the the meticulousness of your Latin and your attention to Latin shows this very anal approach to mayflies, which you did, which is what that sport of dry fly hatch matching needed. And then when you set up your aquariums, whole what what. What started the whole aquarium thing? How many aquarium tanks did you have? Where, where did you, where did you have them? You have, you know, what, what was the craziness when your wife said, what are you guys doing with these aquarium tanks? 
because there's a story about Dick <laughs> Pope's. Uh, I got to share before you start. I'm going to talk about Dick Pope's and uh, Carl Richards and Dick Pope's. The great story that his daughters tells about Dick uh, that I talked about in one of my books, I think, or it's in Hollowed Waters Journal, in one of the Mayfly edition um, articles. I talk about Dick and his caddis, and Dick and uh, Carl were fascinated, and they sang a shit ton of uh, shit ton of uh, hydropsychy caddis in the Muskegon and brought all the larvae back to their aquarium tanks, and they were still playing around with the aquarium stuff and. Um, Nancy, who Dick and Nancy uh, ran the Orvis Thornapple shop in, in Haida, Michigan, Ada, Michigan. And uh, one day Dick forgot to cover the aquarium tanks and she came home and the whole house was covered by zillions of caddis like everywhere. And they just moved into a new house and she was furious and she threatened to leave the house and not come back. And you clean this shit up. And what the hell are you kids doing? You're grown men. You're playing with these goddamn bugs. Uh, are you out of your mind? <laughs> she left with her daughter to go to Chicago. And she said, we're going shopping to Chicago. And you better have this shit place mess cleaned up. They have to get some kind of Roto-Rooter guy or something to come in and vac the whole place. And there were caddis laying everywhere. Um, so that's that's one of the hardships of uh, growing bugs in your house. So how did it start with you guys with the aquarium tanks? Well, uh, back in the late 60s, I started keeping an aquarium. Uh, I, I built a cabin uh, on the – there's a stream called Mud Run. Sounds a terrible name, but it was actually a pretty good stream. And the headwaters of it ran through my property that I built the cabin on. So I used to go collect the bugs down there and I would put it in my aquarium. And, and then I would sit there with a tape recorder. And when I see they were active and ready to emerge and stuff like that, I would put it on the audio tape. So I wouldn't forget it. And, uh, so when Bob joined me back in 71, he says, you know, we should have aquariums for all the streams that we fish. So now I had to put more aquariums in because he lived in Wayne, New Jersey, and he worked in the city, you know. Right. So, so I set up, a, you know, we used to fish the, the the bush kill and the broadheads and uh, Lehigh Valley chalk streams uh, and some of the Western Pennsylvania streams and the Catskills, the beaver kill, the willow and the uh, Delaware. And uh, that's a whole nother story. But um, I would set the quarians up and because of, you know, if they hatched, they would be all over the house. Right. Be a real mess. I built these PVC screen perches, like uh -huh. maybe three feet high and a couple of feet wide. Dick, if you're listening in your grave right now, uh, see, you should have built those PVC perches like Al did. I'm sorry, Dick. I, I know he's listening. Carl and Dick are listening to this podcast, so just FYI. I, I would put branches inside so that they, if they fly, you know, they 
instead of just hanging on the screen, they would get on the branches, you know? Right. And so we did most, when Bob and I did our research, we would go, you know, we'd be in the Catskills, we'd be in Adirondacks, we'd be here, we'd be there. And, you know, we'd spend all day collecting bugs and stuff. And then we would, in the evening, we would photograph them. I would stage them and name them and stage them. And Bob would do the shooting. Uh, because I was an engineer, I had a model maker working for me. So he made all kinds of devices that I drew up uh, so we could get the light source from this point to that point to that point to that point. So that when the slides came back, in them days we used to, uh, uh, Kodachrome. Yeah, Kodachrome. <laughs> Actachrome, yeah. Velvia, all that stuff, right? Yeah. And uh, and we we had a, a Nikon SLR and I I uh, designed some attachments to it that would blow things up bigger than they were. You know. So uh, anyhow, um, most of the stuff we collected on the streams, I would walk around with my neck with coffee cans like bandoleros <laughs> and collect the, put them in there, put the other one in here, put the other one. And then when I get these bandoleros, we go to the motel, but Bob would set up the photo apparatus. Oh and then my I God. Would, and then we, I would have a little stage and I put the, so you were going to like an X-rated old motel, like per two perverted old men to take photographs of 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 mayflies, uh, like having sex. Jesus, yeah, we'd be doing it all night, you know. Oh so, my. And you're doing and, and it I, all night. Shame on you, Al. Shame on you. The hatch would be over, and then you would have to wait another year. And we couldn't do that because uh, uh, Field and Stream wanted a book of a month done in May. And this was the previous summer. <coughs> so we had to get all this stuff on film so we could finish the book. Right. Or else we wouldn't get the, you know, the, the May slot for a book in a month, which really wow. helped us a lot, you know. Oh, yeah. So Bob, Bob drew up a dummy book and we showed it to Field and Stream Book Club, a guy by the name of Eric Pepper. He ran it and he looked at it and say, you're kidding me. You're actually going to do this. And we says, yeah. And, uh, so we did it and they paid us piddling like a buck and a half a book or something like that. And they, they made 20,000 books to begin with. Most of the, if you sold 5,000 fly fishing books, that was a lot. Oh shit! Yeah, they yeah. said, "Now nah, we're going to do twenty thousand, and and all the ones we don't sell, we we put them in the warehouse, and they'll sell over the years." So I says, and he he explained to me that if you made five and ten and twenty, how less and less and less each one cost. Yeah. So by the time you got to twenty five thousand, it was like one third of the cost. So I says, "Would you tackle?" Five more thousand for us. Right. At, and and he said, 
Yeah, okay, I'll do that. And here's what the cost is. And we were able to finance that. And so here's, and this, I swear to God, you ain't going to believe this. He says, well, you know, you're never going to, we never run out of books. You know, every book we had, we have a warehouse full of them. They sold out before the book came out. Holy moly. They did a good job advertising and Bob helped them out. And so they sold all the books and now I got 5,000 books, right? And they says, we need those 5,000 books. I said, well, I says, here's, here's our price plan for the 5,000 books because we already paid for them, you know. The plan is that we'll give it to you for 70% off. We sell them for 60% off to shops. But for you, we'll sell it for 70% off. So, yeah, do the math, you know, say 20 bucks. And what's the three times 20 is six, six bucks a book. Right. Well, we only paid you a dollar and I said, it's okay. We'll sell them ourselves. So clink, the phone went down. Two weeks later, I get a call. All right, send me the goddamn books. <laughs> <laughs> Hardballing so out. I 5, love it. 5,000 books. Hardballing so right off the out. bat, they sold 20-something thousand books. Oh, my God. See? That's amazing. That. That's staggering. And if you read Hatches and if you look at Hatches and, you know, I use it. I don't I don't think there's a time any week goes by that I don't use your book. And and now that I'm writing and publishing and editing Hollywood Waters Journal and I talk so much about Mayfest, it's the Bible lexicon. I mean, it it, it, it it's the go to book between your book and and uh, Mr. Schwiebert's Nymphs. And um, and now we have Carl's Caddis books and stuff. And there's other Caddis books. But I mean, they're lexicon. And you talk about your aquarium observations. I'm going to do a little quote here from uh, from your from Hatches. It says, uh, you know, the nymphs, this is about ephemerellas. We're going to get into mayflies here. But ephemerellas are very nervous swimmers. Ephemerella nymphs swim to the surface with a peculiar wiggle. When they drift with the current for a time before escaping their shucks, which not normally takes place just under the surface film. Uh, often they swim to the bottom and repeat the ascent several times before they are finally able to escape their shucks. During our aquarium observations, we have noticed several interesting behavioral characteristics. Perhaps the angler will glean for knowledge from our research. When the aquariums were disturbed by shadows or physical commotions, the ephemeral nymphs, especially those of Siberia, swam excitedly up and down in a vertical motion between the tank's bottom and the surface. They were also the last nymphs to settle down once the disturbances ceased. Although excitable, these nymphs were rarely shy. Instead, they would normally perch on convenient vegetation and rocks in plain view, unlike many species that hide under debris. That trait, we are sure, unless them makes them very favorable to trout even during hatchless days. Um, talks about nymphs swimming excitedly, peculiar movements, undulating bottoms, forelegs extended. I mean, you did monumental stuff at that time, Al. I mean, that was like incredible. Well, that's that's why I had aquariums. I wanted to see what the trout saw, you know. Now, the way they would swim, they would go like this with their bodies. Can you see this? Yep. Yep. Very clumsily. Then they get near the surface film and they relied on the surface film to open the shuck. 
And if it didn't work, they would come down like this, like a kite. (laughs) And then start back up again. So you can imagine, like, that's a very vulnerable situation for the trout. So they would mop up on these emerging nymphs. And even when they the, the, the wings started to come out, they would also key on those. Uh, so emergers, that's when I decided, man, I got to have an emerger pattern, you know, for each one of the mayfly patterns. Um, so the emergers, I, I probably fish more emerger patterns than I do duns. Yeah, we're going to talk about that because I have a question from one of our readers, subscribers that wants to talk about emergers with you. So we're going to ask you that question. And that's a very good question leading into this. I'm going to do one more little quote here from Hatches. Uh, Trout, this is ephemerellas again. Trout rise eagerly to these vulnerable duns. And at times they become so preoccupied with feeding that wading into an advantageous casting position can be accomplished without putting them down. This is a good opportunity to locate a large fish and wade into ideal casting range without spooking them. The most efficient feeding lanes are usually only a few inches wide and under normal conditions. You know, and 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 large stream-wise browns will seldom be enticed by offerings outside of that narrow vision lane. These are things that, you know, you observed at an early thing that have helped a lot of anglers out that when these fish are so preoccupied in the meniscus, looking at bugs coming, they're they're their their uh, window of opportunity, which my good other mentor, Vince Marinero, who I used to fish with on the Latorte, did his little Felix in his aquarium tank in the ring of the rise and showed the deeper the trout is, the more his de- re- uh, window of refraction is greater and he could see the anger. But when that fish Felix was close to the surface, his view around him narrowed down tremendously. So the deeper the trout, the more they see the trout near the close to the surface, the refractive index is very tight and they cannot see very much. So you could approach them very quickly. That's why yesterday when I was going down my Muskegon river and I was going to a flat section that I talked to you about that looks like Stockport pool or big bird pool and trout were taking stenodema, stenodema Ithaca and canadensis yesterday on the film uh, and they were just hugging that surface. I saw two ospreys just bang two trout, and they dove from way high up because those trout don't see very much when they're on the surface. Down below, they run. So when you're wading a stream, anglers and listeners, if that trout is hanging the bottom, he's going to see you a mile away. But when he's on top, he doesn't see shit. And that's where this whole thing comes into play with this refractive index and all that great stuff. But at this point, we're going to take a little break here. And we before have you, couch before now. you before you do that, Ephemerella, there is at least two dozen major super hatches of Ephemerella in the east and the west. Uh, there's so many PMDs. and they're all very vulnerable when they're trying to emerge. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you said. That's what is happening. Uh, you got uh, Dorothea, you got uh, Inveria, Cornuda. It goes on and on. Glacialis. We're going to talk about all that, Al. 
We're going to tackle it all out, but my uh, my bladder is starting to get full here, and all I right. need a break. Let's with, take a break. Put some water in it. So we will be back, listeners. We're with Al Cauchi, Alfredo Cauchi, the Italian Mayfly Maestro of the Catskill Mountains. We'll be back. Most of you think of Orvis as a trout rod and a reel company. Uh, I've known them for many decades, and I had my first Orvis rod, graphite rod, when I was a teenager, using up my hard-earned paper route money uh, to to buy one. Um, They have been known so much for what they do in the trout world, and their stuff is outstanding, made in Vermont uh, since the the days fly fishing really started in this country. And... um, but, but they've gotten serious with their spay uh, activity. And lately, um, uh, Combs uh, and the rod designers um, got together and said, we're going to be taken seriously in this market. And they came up with the Orvis Mission uh, two-handed series. Uh, I was blown away when I got my first Orvis two-hander. And I took it to, uh, to Iceland. And I was just just overwhelmed by how well it competed with the other rods that I had with me, the Sages, the G. Lewis's, the Berkheimer's. Um, they put in some serious technology in these rods. Uh, the beauty of them, the handles, the, the grips, the, 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 whole, the whole package is just simply amazing. And um, they are now a force to be reckoned with in the spay market. And you should definitely look at the Mission Series next time you're going to purchase the rods. They're, 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 they're very affordable and they're beautiful in the hand and they feel just as good as the top line spay rod you could possibly imagine. So visit Orvis, go to your Orvis dealer, to your fly shop that carries Orvis and ask for the Orvis mission. Give it a test run and look at it and you will be simply amazed how serious Orvis has come into this very competitive spay rod two-handed market.
Hello, listeners. If you love the content that you're hearing on the Hollowed Water podcast series, Migratory Spay, um, you will love the, the books that were written by the guests that have been on this podcast series, especially from Topher Brown and myself, who did the inaugural four-hour series. We talked a lot about Atlantic salmon, and uh, if you're addicted to Atlantic salmon, um, Topher wrote his book called Atlantic Salmon Magic, which was printed by Wild uh, Wild River Press, and my book, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, uh, by Skyhorse Publications. Uh, really take you to the next step if you like what you listen to, if you like all the content that we've been talking about in these podcasts. The next step is to go and read and, and get di- to dive deeper into, into what's behind the magic and the journey for these amazing fish. So we encourage you to go to Amazon, go to your local fly shop or to your bookseller um, and request these books, which will make you see a lot more things that you've missed along the way and uh, dive per- further into the passion for Atlantic salmon. We're with Al Cucci, the mayfly maestro of the Catskills, and we're having a great conversation here about bugs hatching in aquaria and how they fly out and how Al uh, solved that problem. But I'm going to start off with um, a couple of things here. We're going to have a question from a listener about the subjects that we're talking about right here. We got some really great questions from three different listeners, Al, so you're going to be pretty excited with that one. Uh, I want to ask you one question, um, and uh, first of all, I forgot to mention to the Ukraine uh, people to hold on and keep the fight, and we are our prayers and blessings are with you people for what you're going through in this modern age, and I've been saying that on every one of my podcasts, and I continue to say that to this crazy person, and uh, is over with uh, his insanity, but um, we hope you hang in there. We are with you. Our prayers are with you, and uh, we're glad to see that more is being done to help you people. Um, you're wonderful people, and I'm glad my country, Poland, of, is helping you out tremendously also. So staying, hang in there, guys, and um, and hope uh, if any fishermen out in Ukraine, please listen to our Hollowed Waters podcast and Listen to our, subscribe to our Hollow Waters Journal. I just did a new, then this was a really timely po- uh, blog I just did, Al. It's called Noah's Drakes. And I think you're going to find this very interesting. Uh, we lost our gray drake hatch last year, uh, Cyphlonorus quibensensis, which on the Muskegon River is one of the most massive mayfly hatches 
that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Why is, why that specific species? Well, it's 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 Alternatus quibensensis and Rapidus um, are the three different three different subspecies. Correct. Very similar to Isonychia. Yeah, it? very similar. Yeah. Uh, and they they're very similar. But we have probably you know I've fished mayflies all over the world. I've been fishing the Delaware since eighties, um, early eighties. I've seen heavy hatches, but our uh, our uh, Siflinaurus Gray Drake hatch, which I named my business 30 years ago, the Gray Drake Lodge. I'm still Gray Drake Outfitters. Um, our hatch, and I wrote a big blog about it. You can read it at Hollowed Waters Ebb and Flow blogs. Um, but last year, we had one of the worst droughts in 100 years, the worst sustained drought that went on for 16 months. And um, what happened was... The year before, the year of COVID, 2020, was a cold, wet spring. And our Mayfly, our, our alternate, our Siflinoris start about the second week in May, and they go all the way to the first week in July. Literally about six weeks of Mayfly hatches, uh, spinner, excuse me, spinner falls each morning and evening. And in 2020, it was so thick that literally you couldn't fish for weeks on end because the water was like sawdust with spinners. I mean, sawdust in one handful, you could scoop up a thousand spinners in your hand. And and it was so thick. And as, as long as I've been here, those gray Drake catches have been thick, but 2020 was so thick. We had lots of rain, lots of cold weather, a lot of humidity always in the air. And those gray drakes went crazy. And some of the biggest, I caught my biggest 27 inch Brown on the surface on a gray drake spinner that I talk about in my hollowed waters journal. And I, and then all of a sudden the spring of 2021 comes and there's not a gray drake to be found like none. And we were in tears. We lost our minds and our river levels dropped to a hundred year lows. There was entire banks dried up, entire riverbeds dried up. And I talk about it. And basically, my knowledge, I tried, I talked to you, I think about it, and you didn't. When was this? Last year. Last year, when I when, when I did a piece, we did a piece on Al Cucci in Hollywood Waters Journal. So folks, uh, come to Hollywood Waters, and you'll see a beautiful piece we did on Al. But what happened was, and, and this is my knowledge, and I talked to several entomology department. This is very interesting, Al. Several entomology departments I talked to at different universities didn't have much knowledge on Siflinoris. They had knowledge about them, but not they couldn't give me a straight answer as to what <clears throat> happened. Okay. So my theory, and this is what I think happened, was that these bugs lay there, they, they overposit in riffle areas. That's where they concentrate on those riffle areas. I've seen them lay on pavement. I see them lay on cars. But early in, in springtime, they start move. The nymphs start moving around in spring before they hatch. And they start migrating to the shorelines. And these bugs migrate completely on the shoreline. They are completely crawlers on the banks. And as they were migrating to those banks, the river kept dropping and dropping and dropping drastically every night. And we had some very cold nights also that I think these nymphs migrated to these bank areas where they were going to hatch and they probably froze to death or 
They got dried up and the river just kept drying up and drying up and drying up. And bingo, for weeks, we didn't see one damn spinner in the sky. And uh, I thought they were gone. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the mayfly world, it's, it's a 365-day-a-year life cycle. So if I eliminate aquarium tank with mayflies, these may, there ain't going to be other mayflies pop out of the other year class. There are not year classes in mayflies. There is one year class. They lay their eggs, and that's what you get. Yeah, next well, year. there's like the burrowers have two years. Right. Some of the stoneflies have two years. Right, burrows, yes, but 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 your average mayfly that is not a burrow, like you know, hexagenia or you know. Yeah, I would think Cyphonorus is annual. Yeah, Cyphonorus yeah. is annual. So the dra- the banks dried up. We lost the hatch. It was a hot, dry summer. I mean, it was ninety degrees every day. Once April, May came around, June came around, it was terrible, and these bugs were nowhere to be found. And we, uh, my theory was they dried up. So we, I said, it's probably going to, all us anglers got together and say, it's probably going to be years and years and years before the same things come back. But in our lower section. Did you say that you lost them this year or last year? Last year. Okay. Okay. So when this year come around. They will, they will come back, but it's going to take a while. Exactly right. But yeah, there's, there's survivors that multiply. You know, and right. So the whole my whole article was called Noah's Drakes. I mean, there's Noah's Ark and Noah put two drakes on his boat and took them away. But I didn't take in the, the respects of the lower river and our lower river is more channelized and it's more swampy. And the river banks are kind of deep cut to the river. And there's not as exposed gravel bars like there are in the 14 miles. So if you look at mayflies, they usually start in the lower section, warmer sections, and they, the massive spinner flights keep going upstream to the upper sections. There were probably enough of these mayflies that survived in the lower sections, which we don't see because it's all bass water. It's all pike water. So we're not down there chasing hatches. And this spring, when I just said that it's going to take a while before they come back, one of my one, one guy that I know, um, Michael, was in the lower river, and that night we were crying about we lost this magnificent hatch. He sent me a video, and he says, look above me, and there were clouds of gray drakes coming up, flying upstream in massive swarms at a very fast rate, and they were coming from the lower river. So our lower river was Noah's Ark that saved those bugs because the upper river, we lost them. And this year we had a few drakes around, nothing comparable, but we were just shocked that we had drakes after what we experienced last year. So what we're talking about here is we could never figure out nature and nature has a beautiful way of healing itself and surviving itself. Um, so I just thought I'd share that one because we're talking mayflies. And we're going to talk mayflies for a long time, but I have a question for, I have two questions for Al. One is from one of our listeners and one is uh, my question to you, Al. Why do you think the cat skills are such uh, such mayfly factories. What is it about the Catskills and this quality of the rivers and the habitat of those rivers that you find to be such mayfly factories year after year? Well, there's two things. <clears throat> One is the aggregate on the bottom of uh, stones and gravel and uh, rocks. The other is that our mountains come straight down to the river and so it's not 
feasible to farm them. So lack of farms. The biggest destroyer of trout streams are farms because they plow almost to the river. And then when it rains hard, all the silt comes down. Now visualize if you cut the river in half, there's rocks like three, four feet deep in the bed of a river. And they're all little apartment complexes for the bugs. And they live in there. Now, visualize silt after silt after silt coming into the river, and it fills up all those crevices. Farms are the worst thing that could happen to a trout stream. Now, fortunately, the Delaware has mountains that come right down to the stream. So you won't see farms here. Yeah, I mean, that substrata is so important. I mean, when you look at the bottom of the West Branch, the East Branch, the cats, the the, the beaver kill, um, that substrata of that rocky, you know, it's, it's a rocky formation that I talk about in my Nexus book, but it, it's so conducive to mayflies and and. and especially brown trout, which is the shining star of the Catskills. And it's so resilient. And, you know, that, that, that's where you guys did so much of your saning was, was primarily on, on the West Branch and the main Delaware, wasn't it? And the beaver kill and the broadhead, you know. Uh, no, we saned everywhere. And in Pennsylvania? And we, could, we could tell when we're driving into a valley. We would look at each other and laugh. You see all these farms. We we knew what we were going to see, you know, that when we sang, we weren't going to find this, that, the other thing, because it's going to be silted. Yeah. And after you do that so many years, you know, when you come into a valley and you and you look around, you can almost tell before you even step in the water. Silt yeah. is the worst enemy. Of course, there are species that thrive in silt, like some of the ephemeral species, uh, some of the burrowers, uh, but most of them don't. So the diversity of the bugs is is gone once you silt the river up. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we're going to take a question here from one of our listeners uh, and readers, and this is from... Let me get here her name. This is from, um, oh boy, um, David R. in Old Westbury, New York. And David R. asks, hey guys, I love fishing the Catskills and Adirondacks, and I've been addicted to chasing the hatches. It seems like everyone is fascinated with the mergers recently, and all those great mayfly patterns don't seem to work like emergers that I have in my box. What's all this stuff about the meniscus and mergers? A question mark, question mark, question mark. So there is a question for you that you were talking about earlier. And I think he's trying to say that all those great like light kales and all the nice done patterns that you got in your box, they don't seem to work like emergers. And when did you see that big change of mentality about emergers when you were in all the decades when, that you fought? When I when I grew them in the aquarium. Um, the emerging characteristics of each species told me how vulnerable they were. And anything that's 
that is just doing a dolphin kick like that very slowly and gets to the surface and can't break through and then comes back down like a kite and then does it again, the emerge is going to work a lot better than the done. Yeah. When did you see that changeover in mentality that everybody was doing the mergers and mergers and mergers? In the 60s. Yeah. And what book do you think was the big changeover? Well, there wasn't any books on the emerger until, I think, uh, our books and Swisher Richards' book. And, and Selective Trout, right? Yeah. They're the one, they're the two books that woke everybody up to emergers. Yeah, and you didn't see many emerger patterns. I mean, you you didn't go to a shop and you say you got to go look in emergers. It was it was Don Nymph and Spinner, and yeah. and it was like now everybody is fishing an emerger, and I think it's got to be. Uh, I got to think that it's the quality. If you look at the tailwaters, if you look at if if you look at the tailwaters of the Catskills or the South Holston or the Muskegon or out West on the Missouri, they're long, flat, big spring creeks with vegetation, very placid, flat waters. And this is very important to note. We're not fishing turbulent waters with cascading riffles for the most part. Um, We're fishing these long, flat spring creeks where nymphs have a tough time emerging in that tight that tight uh, surface tension of the meniscus, thus emergers became very popular. Wouldn't you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Th- what, what, on sp- creeks like that, you'll have a predominance. I mean, prolific hatches of certain species, but it won't be diversified. Yeah. You don't have enough riffles for EPRs or, I can go on and on with that, okay? Right. Uh, but the neat, the niche or niche, whatever you want to call it, of of the uh, a, a stream that has a lot of grass in it is going to have a lot of swimming nymphs, okay? Like. It, it does have a lot of uh, um, sulfurs in it, and, and most of the sulfurs are ephemerala dorothea, especially are PMDs, uh, inermis and infrequence. Uh, you'll see them uh, a lot in the spring. Betis also, betis, a lot of blueing olives, pseudocleons. Betis are swimming nymphs, yes. Yeah. Yes. Good. Okay. So um, I'd say, you know, I saw that happen when, when, when Carl's book came out and I was bagging groceries in a Grand Island, New York grocery store. And I saw a guy in his suburban, which I talk about in my Nexus book uh, and my selectivity book, he was reading a copy of selective trout and I was bagging groceries and I said, where can I get that copy? He says, well, I, you can't use my copy and, and blah, blah, blah. So I had to steal one from a library and that whole story is in my Nexus book and selectivity. And then my mother escorted me back to this library and made me uh, work in the library Saturday and clean the garbage and wash the floors and scrape the floors. Cause my good Austrian Polish Nazi mother would, would make sure that there was corporal punishment for everything I did bad. 
And I paid the price for that one. I didn't steal. I just never returned it. You know, we've all had those episodes. But um, so, yeah. And then it started with that. And now everybody's fishing the mergers. Um, let's go on to the next question. Let's talk about a little bit about Italy. Um, you are big in Italy and you've been on several. I mean, you're, you're sort of an icon there. Not only are you Alfredo, but you are. You know, you, you Italy. If people just think Italy is just for uh, the the tour buses, I mean, the tours coming out of New York City, and it's not Italy. If you go to Italy, take your fly rod with you because Italy is very diversified country, and there's beautiful trout fishing in every section of Italy. There's spring creeks, there's mountain streams, there's beautiful lakes. I mean, when you when you take that must go on vacation, well, I heard a guy tell me one of my clients said, I love to go on my fly fishing vacations out to Montana and the Catskills, but when we have to go on family vacations. I have to put up with just going on sightseeing in Italy. I says, no, no, no. You take your fly rod with you because there's some great fly fishing in Italy. Al, tell us about your Italian connection. Yeah, I uh, I was invited as uh, it was the World Tuscany Open Fly Tying Contest. They invited me as a judge, and they asked me to pick two other Americans. And uh, I picked uh, one year, I picked uh, Randolph, uh, two years, actually. Uh, and I picked uh, Chuck Freminski and several other guys, too, uh, over the years. Uh, and it was it was an easy gig. I mean, all I had to do is look at patterns and select <laughs> the pattern that you like the best, you know. And... Um, but it was a great affair. I mean, it was like a four-day thing. And it was in a place called San Sacropo, which was really close to where Michelangelo uh, grew up. Uh, and so the priest, like the Pope, would like to visit that area for that purpose. And they didn't have any really great place for him. So they built this fantastic hotel. And that's where we had this contest every year <laughs> because they built this fantastic hotel for the Pope. Wonderful. Um, and that's in Tuscany on the uh, Umbria border. Yeah. Uh, Tuscany in September, especially, it's still hot. Uh, they have white truffle season. Oh, yeah. And you get you get a bowl of tagatelli with some shaved white truffle oh, in it. Oh my god! Freaking oh, amazing! Magnifico! Oh my god! Yeah. With a glass of you know San Marzano, Pinot, oh, big Barolos and Grigio, oh, Barbarescos. Oh my god! I I did a call my culinary little bit of my culinary training in Rome, Italy, and I just loved it. And I talked about it in Hollowed Waters Journal in the winter issue last year. I talked about winter white pastas and winter white sauces to do with your pastas. And I talk about my old restaurant called Al Picchipo Restaurante. It was near the Trevi Fountains. And I learned how to, I was a, I was a, a young American um, apprentice cook where they threw all the shellfish at me and they threw all the fish at me. And I just, I smelled like fish 24 (laughs) seven and I smelled like seafood and I, and I was a trash boy and I did all the nasty jobs at the Italian craftsmen. They're all craftsmen. And I was just a peon. Was that near the the Piazza Navona? Yeah, near the Piazza Navona. Which is one of my favorite spots. 
and the Pantheon is just around the corner. And yeah, there's a lot of a lot of good restaurants there. Yeah. There's a lot and of tourist restaurants too. A lot of tourist restaurants, but we were like we were there. It was an old brick building that was probably from the Roman times, and it was it was so old, and it was sort of like a cellar that most people were the tourists were afraid to go into because we didn't have glitziness. It was like a mom and pop family restaurant forever and ever, and all the all the Italian ambassadors and all the real deal people that knew good food went to our place, and it was a lot of fun to work there. But I still think that when I do shellfish now and everything, I still sort of like look back and say, "Geez, I was a, I was the bum in the kitchen. They they threw all the shit at you. Clean this up. You clean this fish. You clean this." And I stunk like did, fish. Maybe that's why the Italian girls didn't want to go out with me because I stunk like fish the whole time. You know? <laughs> did you ever eat a calamaretti? I did those little baby ones, right? Yeah, in a oh. black in a sepia sauce, the black oh, pink sauce, black squid sauce. Uh, oh my and god! And they put the oh, calamaretti in it. Oh, oh. It's amazing! Magnifico! One of the best dishes I ever had in my life. Wonderful. Okay, we're going to start talking Comparadon and Emergers. So the '80s and '90s were the magnificent times in the Catskills, and I started. Fishing the Catskills, early 80s, and I was up there with, I used to fish on the Salmon River a lot because I'm from Buffalo, Niagara Falls, New York, and I used to go up and fish the Salmon River quite a bit and fish with Jim Rusher. He had a shop on the Salmon River, and he had a guy, a crazy dude, I don't know if you're still alive, but listen, if you're listening, his name was Bruce Bartlett, and he was like kind of a madman, and he was- Bruce Bartlett? Yeah, you remember him? He guided for me. Yeah. I think so, back but the, yeah, probably everybody, the, John, everybody 80s. guided for you, Al. Back Every single 80s. person guided for me. But we were on the river one day, and Bruce was a nutcase. This guy was crazy. He was almost as crazy as uh, Lasort. Uh, if you're listening, Mr. Lasort, uh, you are crazy, but we love you because you're crazy and you're passionate. Uh, so this was not a slam. It was Adrian. I appreciate you. On your- Adrian, <laughs> everybody, Johnny Miller, everybody, Paul, everybody. Yeah, Miller, everybody. Miller worked for me. He, he worked for me for a long time. Miller worked for he you. Everybody worked for me. Yeah, it's like when we get old, everybody seemed to work for us. And uh, But they all learned from you because Johnny Miller started setting up aquarium takes and became a bug doctor and a photographer extraordinaire. And see, you were the genesis. But this Bruce Bartlett guy, was a, he was a madman. And uh, we were down by second heaven below Bart Parker pool. And you and, and I think Bob came by and he said, those are the couch. That was gets couchy and Nastasi. And they're, they're going to take over this river. They're going to build an empire here. And I remember that. And I saw you guys and you look like two mafia hitmen, and uh, with your cap, with your fedoras on. And I'm like, who the hell are those guys? And then, then you started the empire, but those were the golden years. And, I just want to talk a little bit about the forward you wrote for me in Selectivity, which was such a beautiful forward, by the way. My book wasn't that very good, but the forward was really good. And I'm going to talk about you. You write in your forward. I well, you, be, you know, you guys and your your uh, editor wanted me to talk about myself. And I said, I can't do that, Matt, you know. You did. Well, and, you gave me a lot of nice accolades. So don't worry. The rest of it's all how great I was. So I, I hope the check came through and you cashed it, right? You cashed the check, right? You mean, the I, good know, check. I never got a check. Well, <laughs> well, then I have to go back and find out because I think you cashed the check. It was for a lot of money from you. No, to give I, me I didn't, for the forward. No, I never. I well, never. I'm just joking, but I think I sent you close to a thousand dollars. But anyways, I'm going to quote what you said here. You said throughout the 60s, I transformed into a fly fishing maniac. 
taking weekend trips to the mountain rivers of the Poconos, Catskills, and Adirondacks. I couldn't get enough fly fishing. Betty initially joined me on those trips, but eventually tired of those long days when I left the stream only reluctantly at dark. She hinted that my surf fishing cousin might be interested in fly fishing, and he soon became my first fly fishing buddy. It was great to be a fly fisher in those days. There was a fly fishing revolution going on with books, new technology and equipment, and a greater awareness of the environment. All this inspired me not only to fly fish, but also experiment and develop a better fly fishing strategy. My mechanical engineering background gave me the tools and ability to analyze and solve problems, which I applied to my fly fishing research. I read every entomology and fly fishing book I could get my hands on. Charlie Fox's Wonderful World of Trout, Vince Marinero's Modern Dry Fly Code, In the Ring of the Rise, Arflick Streamside Guide, Ernie Schwiebert's Matching the Hatch, on and on, Needham's Biology of Wayflies. That was a golden era. And that was a yeah. time when this sport was going. And you were talking that you talked to your friend, John Randolph, and a guy that um, wrote a beautiful review on my selectivity book. And he's now writing a book on the golden era. But I wish we get those golden eras back. And that's what I'm trying to do with Hollowed Waters Journal. I'm trying to bring back. Yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to hook it. you up with John. Uh, yeah, but that, uh, that, yeah, that golden era is really important. And I think that's when... If you take those great books written back then, you, Schwiebert, Matching the Hatch, Nymphs, Richards, I hope we get that golden era back. Do you think it's possible to bring and, that and, back? Uh, and Gary LaFontaine books. Oh, too. Gary LaFontaine yeah. book, Caddis. And oh, God, it's I, my heart starts pumping when I start thinking about that. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's possible. And that's what we're resurrecting. Now we're going to go to comparisons and emerger and spectrumized dubbing concept, which I think I still use spectrumized dubbing for everything I do. And, and do still, really? I do. Honest to God, I use spectrumized dubbing and I talk about it. I've talked about it in every article I've written in Hollowed Waters Journal and my other articles. But the, the, the uh, give us the concept for spectrumized dubbing and how you came up with it. And guys out there, if you're okay. drive by fanatics, you need to use spectrumized dubbing. This is not a plug. This is called you ain't nothing unless you're using it because it incorporates everything a trout sees. Go ahead. All yours, Al. Yeah. Well, first of all, nobody handled more mayflies than we did. Thousands. Okay. So we checked it. We had like printers charts with colors and we would match the color of the abdomen and the back and then mark it down, you know, what, what it was, what, what color number it was. So if you, and the, the printer's colors are red, yellow, and red being magenta, blue and yellow on white paper. Okay, so that's what spectrumized, how we made spectrumized fur. So many parts yellow, so many parts red, so many parts blue, so many parts white equals a shade of color. And if you look through my my uh, fly tires color guide, you'll see there's a 10 yellow page and a nine and eight, a seven, and then, and then the red and the blue. I think the blue's on top and red's on the bottom, and then all these parts. So when I would fish with Bob, I'd say, oh, it's a 10 five, six. And he and then he, he would say, well, I don't know, it looks more to me like a, a 9 5 4. <laughs> I said, well, I don't yeah, have there the you book go. here right now. <laughs> but yeah, th- so 
when you use spectrumized fur, Cuchinostasis uh, fur, you are looking at colors that were matched to the original insects. And uh, and then we we manufactured the color. Tone. Right? It's called tone, right? It's all yeah, about and like if you tone. if you put ten parts this and four parts that and then the three parts this and you then you put the white in, which is like the paper that the printer prints on, right? And that tells you how many whites. And then you put it in a little mini blender. It comes out and you say well, it kind of looked like the other color, you know, until you wet it. Once then you wet, wet it, it, and that's where it turns into exactly what the insect is. Exactly. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and then a comparison, uh, you know, the deer hair, brilliant and, um, you know, similar to, uh, you know, what's his name? I think I had this talk about you and you got really heated because I said it looks a lot like Betters is. Uh, haystack and uh you said eh, it's not really better but it was sort of like in that variation type thing so who came out first you or or betters well i'll tell you the real story on betters <laughs> okay now betters was a good fly tire and it's all he did all day was tie flies and and then when the green drakes were on he had this uh haystack it was it was pretty big. It had a deer hair clump, and he fanned it out a little bit, and he had a, a big clump of deer hair for the tail. And so I bought a couple of those, and I and I liked the idea that it didn't have any hackle on it. Right. So, and what I did was I took the I took the idea of a deer hair wing, and I splayed it out like a fan all the way, you know? And then I used fibets or hackle, stiff hackle, saddle hackles for the tails split and a narrow spectrumized dubbing body. So, um, yeah, I got the idea of a deer hair wing from the haystack. Yeah. But when Betters later came out and said that he invented, no, I asked him, I said, who invented this pattern? And I asked him in front of Bob, too. And he says, one of my father's buddies, because uh -huh. we've been using it for the Green Drake for a long time. Uh -huh. And he comes out later in a book or something and says that he invented it. So I, I didn't want to get involved. Everybody there. invented everything. I know the way it is. Uh, your thoughts on trout selectivity and um, how do you, so what do you find, now here the question is, now do you find that Delaware fish compared to Montana fish? And that's a big, broad question, but I'm going to say how to, let's, let's compare something to like the, the Delaware system to what be everybody, like the, let's talk about the Delaware two, and I call the Delaware two in July the Missouri because if you go out to the Missouri in July, everybody from the Delaware is on the Missouri in July in August, and you'll see JC and everybody knows JC and everybody's out there. Yeah, I, if you're out there, but 
I would say the Delaware and Missouri fish very similarly because they're long, big, flat, placid tailwaters. And do you find the fish on the Delaware to be more selective and finicky than the ones out on the Missouri? What are your thoughts to that? Yes, the Delaware fish are more persnickety uh, for um, mainly one reason. Uh, the Delaware has a riffle, a run, and a pool. Riffle, run, pool. Riffle, run, pool. Right. And what I found, and I did the math on these too, is that a big brown trout likes his food moving funneled to him in one foot per second. Now think, just move your finger like 1,001, okay? You get an idea. If you do 1,001, 1,002, it's it's slower, right? So on the Missouri, I fish for bank fish, you know, big browns, almost entirely. And they like it when it, uh, in a seam, off the seam, where the water slows down. But the water never slows down like it slows down on the Delaware. Yeah. The Delaware, it's, I mean, it's much slower. I right. would say that the Missouri is four times faster in yeah. every aspect. Yep. So they don't get a good, they don't look at the fly as, and see the fly as good as they do on the Delaware and right. the Missouri. So if it looks approximately like what they're eating, they're going to eat it. it. But the big deal on the Missouri is the presentation. I mean, it's got to be perfect and and they'll take it. Yep. Um so that we we obviously. Uh, by the way, I've been I've been fishing in Missouri since four uh, since forty. It's my forty fifth year. Right. Every year for forty five years, except the pandemic year, I've been out there, and I do the hosted trips. Sometimes I, if I'm not doing a hosted trip there, I'll just go there for a week and just fishing myself or with a friend. But I, yeah, it's one of my. Absolute favorite. The Missouri to Delaware and Andros Island for bonefish are the three best things in the world for a sight fisherman. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, when it, we, we both agree that I think that Delaware probably has, and the Catskills as a whole, I have some of the most selective trout on the planet due to the fact that they're probably close to the largest city on the, on the planet and an hour and a half drive. So, and the entire East coast. So these fish get worked over quite a bit. I had um, Paul Weimer on, which uh, Al, you know, Paul Weimer, he just wrote a beautiful book, dry fly strategies, and he guided out there so much. And we talked, check out my first podcast, second, third podcast, I think was with Paul Weimer and dry fly strategies, but we all know how selective trout can be on the Delaware. That's a proven fact. Uh, for you, what you know? What is your approach in Magic to consistently catching big browns or even big, very selective uh, main Delaware rainbows? Is is it leaders? Are you a long leader guy? Uh, uh, are you long tippet guy? 
Um, what is your leader that you fish for on the Delaware? What's, what's well, your Well, I generally size? fish a nine-foot leader with a three-foot uh, tidbit that I, I'm, I'll, I'll add to it, you know? Really? And I fish 18-foot leaders, so go figure that craziness. Nah, I, I never found that I had to do that. Uh, right. So, yeah, so there you go. Delaware. I use like five, six foot tippet. I'm building these compound leaders with 40 pound chameleon maxima at the butts. And I don't know. I think it's all in my head. I guarantee you most of my crap in my life is in my head, but um, fly size and color. Are you up? So let's go back to uh, Mr. What's his name? Ed Van Putt said the only fly he fishes on the Delaware is uh, Adams. And he has a box of size 20 Adams to size eight Adams. And he never fishes anything else, but in Adams, are you, on the Delaware and other Missouri and other areas that you like to fish, are, are do you think presentation is the is the most important thing, or do you think exact imitation is important thing? Uh, where do you stand with that? Some people say presentation. If you talk well, to Rosenthal, I would, you know, I would say presentation is always important because any kind of drag, no matter how small, micro drag. The fish will not take it because it's not what the insects are doing. Right. And uh, so that's always supremely important. Um, Some people say fly size, fly color is witchcraft. Uh, fly, fly color, uh, my good friend, uh, Datus Proper, and when I wrote Selectivity, he said fly color, even Marinero said color is nothing but old wife's table, old, old wife's tables and farmer's uh almanac junk there's color doesn't mean anything i i dispute that and i say color is everything how do you view it al i i say the same thing you know like a fish see a human has cone vision a trout has cone and rod vision the cone vision the color perception is totally amazing with the cone vision at dusk it turns in the, the fish's eye turns into a rod vision, which is shades of black and white. So color doesn't mean much at dusk and till about two o'clock in the morning when they start to get the cone vision back. Yeah. I've studied, studied this. Okay. Yeah. And um, that is in my, if you look in my, um, um, fly tires color guide there'll right. be a section on that yeah be able to read it and and what but, your spectrumized dubbing does is blend those tones together that gives a lot of that uv light that the fish see so yeah be, if you look at a dun or, or a nymph it's not a solid color right combination of different colors now as the further away you, you look at it the more it looks like a solid color. When you bring it in close, it's not a solid color. Yep, yep. Wonderful. Okay, we are with Al Cucci getting talking about mayflies and tone and color and size and presentation and leaders. And we're going to take a break right now. And thank you so much for listening. And we will be back and we're going to be talking about a lot of, we're going to take you through a season of mayflies and talk about peculiarities of different mayflies that are hatching. So stay with us. And uh, we will be right back.
Hooks and lines have been around since Cro-Magnum Man and Neanderthal Man, and that's what they caught to catch fish. And today, your hooks and your lines and your tippet material and your leaders are so important. And it's the ultimate challenge in what happens with you on, on a trout stream or a salmon and steelhead river. Um, hooks and lines are by far the most important things when it comes down to your choice of quality. And quality is probably the number one thing on the mind of English Sport Group from New York. Um, Maxima Leader Material and Leaders and Daiichi Hooks are their specialties. And I've been a big fan of Maxima as so many fly swingers and spay fishermen for such a long period of time. Their chameleon match up to the toughest conditions, the abrasion, they're, they're stiff enough to turn over large flies. The ultra green and clear uh, are just perfectly blend into a lot of the blue green aqua looking waters of certain salmon rivers that usually have two different types of connotations, a tannic or a very, very bright, clear scenario. Um, Maxima is the ultimate test pound for, for heavy, big flies on the swing. Uh, when that fish takes your fly, you're gonna be very protected with Maxima. Daiichi hooks, there's not enough good things I can say about them. Um, in the trout series, the specialty hooks that they have, um, down to their big Alec Jackson spay and the different type of spay hooks that they carry. Um, I would always shop for the best, shop for Daiichi and Maxima, and you will never go wrong.
Hello, listeners. As publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, Our accolade-winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns, and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. Northern Magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. Welcome back. We are with Al Couchy talking hatches and mayflies and all great stuff. And we hope you're enjoying our program. And please send us more comments and letters and suggestions and subscribe to Holland Waters Journal. And you can see a beautiful piece that we did on Al Couchy in, in the journal. And we are going to be going to print this summer. So we welcome all of you to come on board. Uh, we're going to take entertain another question that we have here. Uh, This one is from Rachel in Arlington, Virginia, and she says, Mr. Couchy, I have an older copy of Hatches given to me by my grandfather, and it is my Bible on Hatches and Mayflies. Where do you see the future of Mayflies going with climate change? And do you have any plans for any new books? Asks Rachel from Arlington, Virginia. And so... How do you see mayflies unfolding with all this crazy weather and dry weather and droughts like I just talked about and my mayflies, what happened? What do you see? You, you know, well, it, it's, you know, mayflies are 300,000 years old. Right. And you've constantly had the thawing out of the caps, the flooding, and then the freezing. You know, how many thousand times that happened? over millennia who the hell knows right right so it's always changing everything's changing all the time you just you know in our lifespan we don't see that much of a change but 
I don't know if that answers the question or not. Well, it's changing, and I think uh, I think we're going to see more volatile changes with climate change, and we're going to see. But like I talk about Noah's Ark, Noah's Drake's um, nature has a way of making itself uh, most of the time uh, encompassing for these changes, and has different breeding cycles and different mating uh, mating cycles in different areas and different micro niches and different everything. So. I think we're going to be fine. I think the losing part of the deal is going to be us humans. If we continue to kill each other the way we're killing each other, I'm not going political here, but, um, and waging wars on people, but you know, the mayflies, I'm not worried about them. Al, um, there's, not, there's not enough fly fishermen. <laughs> that's true. There's not enough fly fishermen. Um, what are you, do you plan on doing any, she says, any new books coming? And I think you talked about maybe doing a reprint. You said, uh, if there's any publishers well, out there. And I'm I'd, I'd like to do a reprint on hatches and, uh, and make it uh, even better. That'd be, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. And I think it's timely and much needed. And uh, I'm going to see if I could help you with that. I think that would be really cool to do. And um, so that's it. And Rachel, you keep on fishing hard and, uh, reading Al's book and know your Latin and know all your Latin. So we're going to take you through a little season here. We're going to talk about mayflies and little peculiarities on hatches. Uh, And we're going to start off with uh, one of our favorite BWOs, blueing olives. And they come into a, and remember I'm talking to the Dean here of mayflies. So Al, you don't want to get too bogged down in this stuff because you could go on and forever and write another book, but you know, betas and ephemerella, Pseudocleon all sort of fit into that blueing olive category. What conditions do you see most favorable for them? Uh, how do they, you know, give, give us just a couple particulars about your, your experiences with betas and ephemerella and pseudocleon. Well, uh, betas and paraleptophlebia. You're familiar with paraleptophlebia. Right, right, right. Yep. yep. Okay. Uh, adoptiva is very prevalent here and mollets a little later on here. And what I find is that if there's a big hat, if there's a big population of paraleptophobia, there'll be a smaller population of betas and vice versa because they have, they have the same habitat. Right. Uh, what about cloudy weather, rainy weather? Uh, I had some of the well, best betas hatches I've ever experienced on on Christmas Eve on Mossy Creek, uh, Spring Creek in Virginia. And I got to go out and fish before Vigilia. If you Polish people out there know what Vigilia is, it's the Christmas Eve dinner. And I went to Mossy and it was like just buzz, starting to snow a little bit. And I had one of the best betas emergers ever. And I caught a couple of nice browns on that. And tell us about their photophobic tendencies and how they like those cloudy days. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> you pick out the worst days <clears throat> in the spring, the fall. I don't fish in the winter, but the spring, the fall, if you pick out the worst days, you're going to have a great day on the water because the insects don't experience the weather. They just experience the temperature of the water. 
Right. And uh, they they do experience barometric change. So when you get a drop, a big drop in the barometer, that'll usually stifle a hatch. Uh, but the insects like to hatch in the dark, semi-dark, and cloudy conditions. That's when you get the biggest hatches. Yep, absolutely. I experienced And we all like day. to be there when the sun's out, and it's nice, and a T-shirt, and this and that, and it's not a good way to go fly fishing. Yep, yep. Uh, I experienced that the other day. I was on a section of this river, and it was a bright, sunny day, and then all of a sudden, a dark band of clouds started coming through, and it started to sprinkle a little bit, and every Stenonema Cahill was coming off, and I had trout rising at 12 noon and big trout rising, and there was nothing going on in that broad daytime. So that summed up the old days of fishing Bard Parker pool in a drizzle, and you had every trout rising, and a sunny day, you swear there's not a damn trout on the river. What about Quill Gordons? What's your impression on Quill Gordons and – any peculiarities about them? Well, it's very important that you have really good riffles for, for uh, EPRS pluralis and vitreous. Uh, EPRS, they live in the riffles and they're, they're uh, clingers. They cling to the rocks. They crave more oxygen than the other mayflies. And so if you have good riffles, you're going to have good EPRS. Yeah. Yep. Stenonema vicarium, March Browns. Tell us about them. March Browns, vicarium, fuscum, gray fox. They are uh, a really good hatch in the Catskills, especially on the Delaware. Uh, When they usually, they're like a, a crawling type nymph. And They'll usually crawl to the banks and hatch on the banks. Both of those species. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, they get they get stuck in the current, and you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the brown trout love them because the brown trout love the banks. Yeah, too. Exactly. They're they're bank huggers. What? Uh, let's go into uh, now the yellows, the pale, the pale mayflies, the sulfurs. Um, Invaria, Invaria and Dorothea, um, what are some, you know, the Delaware system is a massive sulfur system, as, uh, as you know. Um, what, why is the Delaware so prevalent um, with such a long-duration sulfur hatch? The long duration of uh, sulfur hatch is basically in the upper west branch and the upper east branch. and in the upper uh, waters, they're always cold. You know, water comes out 42 out of our dams here. And uh, so they need cold. If the water warms up into the 50s, sometimes you won't get a very good sulfur hatch. But in the, it's, the closer you go to the dam, the closer it's going to be to the mid-40s and, you know, low, low 50s. Uh, also... There are, uh, because there's overflow from the dams and bottom flow, you do get a little more silt in the upper stretches of the Delaware 
than you do uh, in the midsection. Uh, and those in- insects like silt also. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break, uh, a real quick break here, uh, just a very short one. And we're going to be right back. We're talking bugs and we still got to go through Drake's and uh all the good stuff and then we're going to end it up so this will be our final break and we're going to be back so stay with us we're with al Cucci talking hatches I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the flying field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi, Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo, um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline. Tell Marcos I said hi. And it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years, and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter, and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders. Um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, 
uh, traditional spade casting. Uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional styling is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, they're a representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing if you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're going to really enjoy these rods. Able reels have been the pinnacle of reel technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems, are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection, and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their reel systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship. Another USA-made company that gives each reel a hand touch and they're boutique-made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product.
We are back and we're talking season of hatches with Al Cucci. And we just talked about sulfurs and we talked about how down by him, um, they, 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 they get those early sulfurs in the May, June, early sulfurs. And then as the water gets warmer, the sulfurs like that cold water. So that ideal perfect storm of cold water, weeds, gravel, and um, they just love hatching and hatching. They'll hatch forever like on the South Holston, same southern tailwaters. They do a lot. Uh, I got a question here that fits what we're talking about. This is a question from uh, Dylan in Billings, Montana. And he writes, hey, guys, I chase PMD, uh, ephemeral and frequens, uh, enormous, uh, enormous uh, hatches on all the on all the Bighorn, Big Sky, Yellowstone area rivers and Livingston, Paradise Valley, Spring Creeks. The fish rise to them very selectively and finicky. Like a friend said, they do on his tailwaters out east to sulfur hatches. Why so finicky with the y- little yellow mayflies is his question. Why do they rise so well, finicky to little yellow mayflies? Al, you got to answer that one. Okay. It is an ephemerella. An ephemerella species have this dolphin, lazy dolphin kick come to the surface and only only zero in on the most vulnerable aspects of that emergence. You could completely, maybe you're throwing a dry, it may completely ignore it. But if you had a, 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 a emerger that was had a, what's the name of that hook? Uh, one that big curve on it. A click, a click and hammer? Yeah. Anyhow. Like I yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. That sinks the fly a little bit. Yeah. You'll do a lot better with that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Uh, let's talk about, um, let's go into now. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it, what, what Dylan, he's talking about is the fact that uh, if you're fishing, especially that spring of uh, limestone uh, spring, Creek, excuse me, uh, spring creeks out in uh, Livingston, Paradise Valley and those creeks, the colder water slows those bugs down tremendously. And they're not very powerful insects as as a duns like like drakes are or isonychias are or other bigger mayflies. Uh, they're very dainty. And, and the English talked a lot about dainty, the pale wateries, the taint, dainty mayflies. And they don't hatch as rapidly as some mayflies do. And that cold water, and they love cold, weedy water. And cold, weedy water is usually very spring-fed or spring creek water or tailwaters. And it takes them a lot longer to emerge. And trout have the luxury in these flats to glide with them and see if they made one or two twitches or they made no twitches. And then you got hundred guys standing up in Stylesville trying to imitate the sulfur hatch. And when I did my selectivity DVD, there were a billion sulfurs on the water on a 95 degree July afternoon. And those fish saw every emerger, every done pattern, and they were waiting for that bug to make one more fold of its wing, or they were looking for a, a done that was floating on its side that wasn't straight up. They were looking for something peculiar. And when you got that flat section of water and you have a sluggishly emerging mayfly like a sulfur is, 
they're going to be snooty about it because they got all the world in the all the right in the world, especially if that Brown's probably been hooked six or seven times in the last two weeks. He's going to realize that he's not going to take that damn fly. He's going to take the one that just twitched three more times that an angler couldn't duplicate. There you go. There you go. And that's that selectivity process that I talk about in my book, you know. Now, you you brought it up, so uh, and I forgot to say it that the the movement of sometimes you you can't catch a fish during a sulfur hatch or uh, a PMD hatch because the fish are keying in on that motion that dolphin kick motion you'll see yep. you'll think it's a rise but all it is is a uh, uh, dorsal fins splashing the surface. You know what I mean? Yep, yep, exactly. Because they're eating them underneath six inches. Yep, you're exactly that right. That happens a lot. Yeah, you, you hit it right on the head, my friend. That's exactly it. All right. I hope we answered their question, Dylan. Just stay with the part. If I give, if I were you, hunt one head at a time. Stay with one good fish that you want to catch and Pay your dues. It might take an hour or two. I spent many a two hours, three hours on a fish on on Al's Delaware River and other tailwaters, and I eventually got him. Persistence, persistence will kill the cat. Curiosity kills the cat, but your persistence and determination will slay the cat. And um, that's basically what you got to do is stay with them because he's not going to be smart forever. He's going to make a mistake. And trout are sloppy, greedy, especially big browns are greedy. They're like that kid that just ate one too many candy bar and got sick in his stomach because he wanted one more. So if you pay attention to that, you're going to, you're going to fool these guys quickly here. Let's talk about green drakes. What are your particulars Al that you see with green drakes and, and Brown drakes um, in, you know, these two uh, bugs. There is on the, on our rivers are shortened emergence periods, like maybe a week. So you got to be there at the right time and to get them. But they're easy to spot because when a green drake is hatching, it takes a while, even on the surface, to get out of that monster shuck. And you'll see a big splash on on a bank or even in the middle of the river. But I I stick with the banks because that's where the big browns are. The... When you see a splash and you see it again, just put your emerger green drake on or brown drake, whatever one you're fishing, and you cast it to that spot, and I guarantee you, you'll catch them on the first cast. That's the first good drift that goes over them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the spinner falls are hard to find. You know, you know, they usually come after dark. Yeah. And uh, I, I know in the Lombada, where you come from, the Hexagenia Lombadas are similar. Uh, yeah, they come at dark too. Yeah, you're out fishing night, and you know, especially with the, with uh, femora, with Gudalada, you know, those 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 coffin flies come at dark, and you're standing out there on Penn's Creek or on the Delaware, and you're saying it's not going to happen. Then spinner falls happen, it's pitch black, you can't see well, you don't know what's going on. So it's night fishing. Green drake night fishing and hexagenia is very similar, you know. Night fishing, that's what it is. 
They feed. Yeah. They'll they'll like feed it. like a couple times. I didn't even go out until eleven, and fish till like two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and I yeah. catch some big fish. Yeah, and, and now you know, the... go ahead. It's the visibility is zip, but if you go out and yeah, you have to wait. I don't wait anymore. You know. When yep. you go out in that in the dark like that, and right. you throw your line out and you bring it back, and even though it's, there's going to be like something, if there's any kind of a moon, you're going to see the streak it makes in the surface film your your line. So you basically yep. know how far. Then you mark that off, and you just look for a fish that's within that range. And then you plunk it down when he rises. Yeah. And then you'll exactly. get it. Yeah, like Hexagenia too. Say, you know, Hexagenia night fishing, there's uh, there's books. We talked a lot about it in our Mayfly issue. We we go deep into the drakes, the, the noble drakes and hexes. And it's all about measurement. Where is that fish going to be? Scout your territory out in the daytime. Measure your leaders because you're going to be fishing by feel and sight and sound and your quarters. Where's your back cast can end up in the trees. You got to measure it all out. It's all calculated night war, night warfare with, uh, with Drake spinners, especially the hexagenia limbatas and, and the, and the green drakes, the gudalata and, and even brown drakes, same type of dark stuff. I talked a little bit already about gray, gray drake, syphilinaris, black quills, leptophlebia, I find them very similar to gray drakes uh, that they emerge on the shoreline. How about you, um, um, Al? We don't have big uh, uh, leptophlebia hatches on our rivers here. And big I, in Michigan. They're big in Michigan, okay. Yeah, unlike the Paramarquette, the Rogue, all the rivers that have a lot of wood and timber on the shoreline, they like to crawl up on that. They look just like gray drakes. They got that black quill body. That's why they call them black quills. And they uh, they look a lot like them, and they hatch at the same time. So you get very confused. I mean, I've, I see them in my saying, you know, not right. big quantities of them, but I do if I'm saying just to see what's in the, in the riffle areas, you know, they'll show up. Yeah, uh, let's talk about, uh, let's go to Isoniki because we're coming to the end here, and I don't want to tire you out too, brother. Too much. Isonicia hatch, by far my favorite hatch on the Delaware. Uh, it comes off in the afternoon. It comes off in the evenings. Uh, some of the biggest trout are taken on ISOs, CDC ISOs, Compara ISOs. I mean, ISO is the new, I think ISO is the new God Mayfly. And uh, I used to love fishing Bard Parker Pool with Paul Weimer, and we used to play heavy metal music and drink scotch in the parking lot and then go out and, <laughs> and go catch some big browns and rainbows in Bart Parker pool. Oh, now it's called junction pool, I think. But um, the Isonicia hatch is great. It comes off in the middle of the day when you're chasing little sulfurs and pseudos. And what's your take on ISOs? Uh, and by the way, in your book, you say they emerge mainly on the shoreline on my river here. They emerge full blown right in the middle of the river. Where do we stand with that? Well, I have we have certain species like we we have about four or five species of them here, right? And uh, anywhere is from a, a number eight to a number fourteen, and anywhere is from a, 
uh, uh, a purplish uh, gray body to uh, an mm-hmm. olive, an olive body, and a green, you know. Uh, so it's all occurring with species, the different species hang in different areas, you know. Yeah, bicolor, said Larry. Um, but we yeah. start we start getting them, we start getting them the end of May, and you're liable to see them all the way into the end of October. Yep, yep. And big fish come up for them. You could be fishing a wild pool, and everybody, all these trout are sipping little pseudos in the afternoon or sipping spent sulfur spinners. And uh, out of nowhere, you'll see one freaking sailboat bicolor come down uh, Isonicia and all of a sudden whoosh, it's like an immediate plus uh, I hunt with the, I have a, a wiggle nymph called the isocane and that hex wig, uh, that Isonicia wiggle nymph of mine. I hunt the shorelines with that. And I fish a lot of my water on the never sink with that. And I crush all the day. What's that? Use an indicator. No, I'm swinging and swip, stripping and swinging at a pretty fast pace. Like a a streamer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm twitching and stripping, but yeah, that's, we hunt those shorelines and Johnny Miller and I used to hunt the shorelines with that. And those Browns like to hug those shorelines. They know those ISOs are moving towards the shore a lot of times and they're, they're targeting a fast swung. I mean, Isonicia nymphs are fast swimming nymphs and they hit them like streamers, man. They just crush them. Very fast. Right out they of look like hand. minnows in the water. Absolutely. Two more bugs, and they then we're going like into the end here, Al. And then, trichos, what's your take on trichos, my friend? Well, I fish trichos every year, big time, when I'm in on the Missouri and Montana and other rivers. Uh, on the Delaware, we have um, a case, certain pools that will have some. Uh, you're better off fishing the Dunn. Instead of the spinner falls, because it's hard to find a spinner fall on this river. Mainly, I guess, because of, yeah, any, we do have a lot of wind on this river. Yeah. And wind blows right. them out, yep. the spinners. But <clears throat> I see them emerging like sometimes in the morning with Canuda. Yeah. And uh, you, you can catch them in the morning too on Duns. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, um, you know, our try. But I've used every I've used every trico pattern you could possibly think of out west with the guides, because I'm not pushy with guides. I let them like, I like yeah. this. Okay, let's use it. And then, then, then I get to the point. If we don't, we're not productive. I say, okay, let's try this. You know. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Uh, I'm on your areas and your neck of the woods. I find the lower east branch to have probably the best trico. Spinner flights in that lower section just before uh, dumps into the beaver kill and that lower east branch down from that big state game area. I found some good trico hatches there and big clouds of trichos in that lower east branch, uh, you know, below Chinopal in that area up there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, anyways, I don't get to fish that much uh, there because I I stopped waiting uh, 15 years ago because of my yeah, back. So I have, to, I have to be in a boat. You know? Yep. Well, on that, when I was, I used to love to wait. I mean, I, oh yeah, I, I know waited. you were a monster. I seen you waiting a couple of times in your in your home pool there. I know, I know, you used to be a well, beast. I was in the late sixties. Ah, and, well, you you. And waited. then my back went out, and uh, and then I had two operations on my back, and I had to go to the float boat. 
Well, I'm trying not to get an operation on my back, and I'm listening to you. When I my doctor tells me you need to get a back operation, I say I'm listening to Al Cucci. He tells me don't do it. So I'm go listening to, go to, to fit good physical therapist. Okay, that's what I'm going to I'm going to look up. But if, if I, they if they look at you and say don't come back anywhere, there's nothing I can do, and forget then about you it. Consider something if you know. But back operations never seem to work. I know they never. Everybody tells me that. Even my doctor tells me that. Just forget about it. They're 50, 50% of 70% of people. Anyways, we have talked about mayflies galore. We've talked about selective trout galore. We've talked about everything galore with the mayfly hatch matching world. And I finally go into my favorite part of the whole um, Holland Waters podcast is called the one minute zip clips. And this is where I ask a question and I want a one minute or less answer from you. And this is my favorite time to do my, doers profiles of my celebrity guests. So I'm going to ask Al my first, my first Italian, my first zip clip question is where is his favorite place in Italy? Uh, the, you ever fished a Tevis day? No. It's the upper Tiber tailwater. Oh, I heard of it. I heard of it. It's right on the, uh, Tuscany Umbria border. If you ever want to go, let me know. I'll tip off a couple guides up there. I'll I'll be there. You tell them I'll be there in a heartbeat. Your favorite Italian pasta. If you had one pasta meal before they were going to put you somewhere down below, what Ital- or up above, depending on how good you've been, what would that favorite pasta meal be? Two. That's a tough question. Two. Tagliatelle. Okay, you're allowed to. Tagliatelle with some shaved white uh, truffles <laughs> <laughs> and olive oil and butter, you know. <sighs> and uh, the other one is uh, calamaretti with those, oh, the ink pasta. Ah, and your favorite vino. The best vino you would buy right now, if you. I had. like Brunello di Montecino. Okay. Did you ever have that? I did. Yeah. yeah. Very, very good. And, and I had it right in Montecino a lot too. Uh, I've uh, I've been from the Alps to Sicily, and my friends usually say, "If you want to know anything about Italy, ask Al. Don't ask me." Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Your favorite book that you ever read? Most inspiring or favorite? Uh, most inspiring. Well, when I was working on bugs, Preston Jennings' book, A Book of Trout Flies, was the most inspiring. 1935. Wow. He yeah, wrote that, that- book. That's a monster they, of a book. Then they reprinted it in 1971. Yeah. That's but a that was an inspiring book. And Marinara's book. In the book. Ring of the Rise. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Movie. What was your favorite movie of all time? Yes, in Italian. Huh? Godfather. The Godfather. Not Goodfellas. The One Godfather. and two. Okay. <laughs> of course. You must have liked The Sopranos. Did you like The Sopranos, too? Yeah, I loved The Sopranos. Oh, there you go. That was a bad break 
him getting a heart attack in Italy like that. Yeah, that was too bad. I grew up in a neighborhood in Niagara Falls that was exactly like the Sopranos skit. There was a pizza shop. There was a Magadino funeral home, Magadino construction company, Magadino pizza shop, Magadino sub shop, Magadino everything, construction company, everything, funeral home. I, where I, it was my neighborhood. I had a pizza shop and a sub shop on every corner. And then I had a Polish deli on another corner. I love that neighborhood. I wish I could go back you, to that you like pierogi? I love pierogies. I love pierogies. They make them good in Scranton here. Oh yeah. There's a lot of Polacks in Scranton. Fluorocarbon yeah. or monofilament? Do you believe in fluorocarbon or monofilament? Monofilament is stronger. You don't. It's uh, unless you're fishing in abrasive near abrasive materials, right? Then the other one works better right. because it's just, it takes the abrasion. But the tensile strength of mono is better than the other. Too um, brittle. Favorite rod and reel. If you if I catch you fishing somewhere, what rod am I going to see in your hands and what reel am I going to see in your hands? You're going to see a Gary Loomis GLX Classic. Okay. And reel. Well, there's a lot of good reels. Yeah, but if you're going to, I'm going to see you fishing, which reel are you going to have in your hand? Oh, shit. And reasonable reels, I, you know, I can't remember the names of them right now. But oh, but the one that you're going to fish with. I don't want to, this ain't a political, uh, this ain't an advertisement. I want to know which one you're going to be fishing with. If I'm going to see you fishing tomorrow, which reel are you going to have? I can't remember the name of it. Okay. Okay, let's call it Al's, I can't remember the name of it. What's your favorite fly line? What kind uh, of line line? I, I've been using Joan Wolf's uh, triangular taper. Okay. And now uh, there is another one that's better. The uh, okay one of my, hooks one of, hooks hooks. What um, hooks are, do you use when you fly tie? What what's your favorite brand? Well, I used to be Mustad. Now what do you use? Umqua. Umqua? Okay. I love Daiichi. Daiichi's got incredible. Daiichi, too. Daiichi's incredible. Daiichi. What, uh, what, uh, what, what, if you had three flies that you were only allowed to have for the Delaware, three flies only allowed to have for the Delaware, which flies would they be? Now you're going to, you know. I'm just going to, you got to have, give, you're only allowed to fish for the rest of your life. If you will go to heaven and St. Peter says, you're only going to, you're allowed to have three flies for the rest of your life. I'll let you fish the Delaware till or eternity, but you're only four, allowed to take three 14, flies in your park. A 14 comparison, whatever species I'm after. A 14 comparison merger. And a comparison spinner. Okay. That's, That's all I, all I and, use. And Montana, the same thing. Yeah, but in Montana, I'm usually with a guide because I have hosted trips, and I don't like to trump a guide. Yep. You know, if he says, oh, I'm killing him on this or that, and I say, okay, you put it on, you know, and then we'll try. And then if we, and then they'll say, and if I said, that fish is not taking that fly. 
And he says, yeah, but there's a lot of fish. We'll go, no, no, no. I says, I want that fish. That's when I pull out my box and I say, let's try maybe one of these. Okay. So, and then everybody's cool, you know? Okay. And the final question, Al, you've made it this far. God, congratulations. The final question is, what do you do in your spare time? In my spare time, I watch baseball. Yankees. Yankees. Okay. On that note, we are ending this podcast. We hope you all enjoyed it. We've enjoyed. Thank you, Al, for being a part of it. Um, Al is still chuggling along, folks, and I hope you enjoy this one because this is most important thing. Get hatches, read hatches, use it as your reference, sleep with it, put the book under your pillow at night, and then you're going to soak in all that knowledge into your into your Goomba head, and it'll all make sense to you. And uh, because we all need to learn and go Yankees. And um, I will see you when I go up to the Catskills, Al. I'll knock on your yes, door. And I, want, you better. I, want, I want some uh, squid. I have, uh, I have a boat pasta. here. You, you, I have a boat. And you squid can, ink pasta. I want squid ink pasta. You can put the boat in. With calamaretti. And yours, and I'll take some great spots. Calamaretti, and that's all we have. Thank you for listening to our Hollywood Water podcast. Subscribe to our Hollywood Water's journal. Remember, our hard, glossy copies are coming to you this summer. So step up to the plate. And on that note, uh, a la prossima. Ciao, bambini. Till next time. We'll talk to you later. Thank you for joining. Good day.